0: Good morning, everyone. Have you ever seen any of those predictions from like, back in the, in the 1950s about what the future was going to be like? Now, you know, actually, in truth, some of the things they, they predicted pretty accurately, uh, at least in concept, if, if not in actual appearance. You know, v- visions of something like uh, a home computer and, and online education, video conferencing, Uh, Email even, that sort of thing. Uh, Other things they predicted, and and, uh, we keep experimenting with them and not having that much success, or moderately so. Self-driving cars, flying cars, that sort of thing. But whether they got things right or wrong, uh, one aspect always seemed to be there, and that was kind of glamorous leisure. The future would be a place where there would be plenty of time to just enjoy the finer things of life and, and become educated and sophisticated. And technology was what was going to make all of this possible. Now, of course, we've come to realize it's, it's a little more complicated than that, isn't it? One thing that technology didn't deliver on, or, or at least it didn't deliver on the, the promise that people made for it, was, was to create uh, this sort of leisure society. We might have a higher standard of living now than people did back then, and it all depends on how you measure things, I suppose. We certainly, though, seem to be more busy also, uh, and that's the watchword of our age. Uh, we haven't found this this glamorous leisure lifestyle to just enjoy the great books, have we, and, and any of those sorts of things that were being predicted back then. You know, I don't know if you've... If you, uh, Have read it or maybe know of it, but the book uh, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer really made the rounds in in the last few months. I saw it it seemed everybody and, and his little dog had a copy of this book. And one of the important points that John Mark Comer makes is that we don't actually need more time, nor can we get it, nor would we make good use of it if we actually did. We'd probably just continue to try to fill that more time with being busy, uh, as as we're doing with the time we already have. Now, actually this sort of book has become kind of a genre both inside and outside of of religious perspectives. One of the most interesting things is that whether whether from a secular perspective or a a sacred perspective, there seems to be this acknowledgement That there's one thing that we need that we're just not very good at. And that's Sabbath of some sort. Jeremiah, the prophet, we've been spending a little bit of time with him. Uh, He had something to say about about this topic as well. Jeremiah chapter 17. Now we'll start at verse 19 today. And uh, we'll read through to the end of chapter 17. Jeremiah 17, beginning at verse 19. Thus said the Lord to me, Go and stand in the people's gate, by which the kings of Judah enter, and by which they go out, and in all the gates of Jerusalem, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah, and all Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, who enter by these gates, Thus says the Lord, Take care for the sake of your lives that you do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. And do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your fathers. Yet they did not listen or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck that they might not hear and receive instruction. But... If you listen to me, declares the Lord, and bring in no burden by the gates of this city on the Sabbath day, but keep the Sabbath day holy and do no work on it, then there shall enter by the gates of this city kings and princes who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their officials, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall be inhabited forever." And people shall come from the cities of Judah and the places round Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin, from the Shephelah, from the hill country, and from the Negev, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings and frankincense, and bringing thank offerings to the house of the Lord. But if you do not listen to me to keep the Sabbath day holy, and not to bear a burden, and enter by the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, Then I will kindle a fire in its gates, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and shall not be quenched. This is the word of the Lord. Now, the need for Sabbath is is not a new one. Ancient societies, they may not have had the kind of always-on work culture 24/7 thing going that that we have now or we think we do all these distractions but nevertheless the lord even thousands of years ago knew that working seven straight days a week was was not good for anybody wasn't good for them wasn't good for us and so he gave them the gift of the sabbath now we probably come from different backgrounds and traditions at a church such as this on how we understand the sabbath as relative or or relevant to Christians some of you probably come to a church back from a church background uh, especially if you're a little older that was quite strict about keeping the sabbath at least in some form right sundays were for church gatherings and maybe some sort of of social visiting with family and and they they were probably for rest though that was often kind of defined in terms of wearing uncomfortable clothes and and not being allowed to play outside and some of you probably have memories of being subjected to that as a kid because rest was not the same as, as leisure or recreation. You probably remember conversations along those lines. Others might come from a background where that just sounds completely foreign either because you just never thought about it, or it was never emphasized, or even if it was emphasized, it was considered to be, well, that's, that's old covenant stuff that we don't need to worry about anymore. Now, this is a far bigger debate than we're going to solve right now. I would just point out that the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments, and it's actually one of the commandments that has the most explanation surrounding it uh, when the Ten Commandments are given. For instance, the commandment not to murder anybody just says, don't murder anybody. There's, the Sabbath has like a whole paragraph about why you should keep it and how you should keep it. And we'll get into that in just a moment. Now, it's true that no, the Sabbath is not specifically reaffirmed in the New Testament. And it seems that they, uh, the earliest Christians shifted their understanding of what it meant and they kept... The Lord's Day, which we now call Sunday, instead of, or at least in addition to, the Sabbath, which we would now call Saturday. And it's true as well that Jesus certainly uh, understood the Sabbath a bit different than the religious teachers of his day and, and had problems and took exception with how they were understanding and teaching others to keep it. But here's the thing look at how the command is given in Exodus chapter 20. Here's the command. And rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So, so two things here, two things. One, this is a prohibition about oppressing those people in your immediate circle, in your town, in your community, that might be vulnerable. Servants or, or slaves, perhaps, and and foreign workers. Everybody got a day off from their regular work. This wasn't just something for a a privileged class of landed gentry or something within Israel that got to take a day off while all the peasants carried on doing their work. Everybody from the top to the bottom of society, even the animals, got the day off from their work. Second of all, this is based in God's work, his pattern in the creation. Even he rested. So while this is part of Israel's covenant, the rationale, particularly in the version of the Ten Commandments given in Exodus, goes back to a time beyond the covenant with Israel, even beyond Abraham, back to the very, very beginning when God made the world. This this sort of pattern of, of six days on, one day off, it seems to just be baked or hardwired into the very fabric of creation and how God designed the world to run, how he set it up to work. Now, of course, it wasn't that long ago. You know that North American culture supported keeping Sunday, the Lord's Day, the Sabbath, whatever word you want to use to describe it, set apart from common activities. I mean, I'm not that old, but I, I did grow up in a small town. But I, I remember things weren't really open much on Sunday. If they were, maybe just for a little bit. In the afternoon, but lots of things were closed. My dad says that back in the 1980s, no one farmed on Sundays in the area where I grew up. But you know that culture is pretty much gone now. Some mom and pop kind of businesses close for one day a week, whether that's Sunday or Monday is another common one. Uh, but they are the exception now, and and even so, there's always this this pressure to stay open to make some more money, keep up with the competition, and then the flip side of that is the fear of what might happen if you don't. And I think this is the thing it all boils down to, right? This idea that if I work the extra day, maybe I can get ahead. If I don't work that extra day, I'll probably fall behind. And that's where it gets tricky in in how we interpret and apply this. On the one hand, it might be true, Uh, The book of Proverbs is full of advice about the benefits of diligent work and the dangers of laziness. On the other hand, though, I think we probably imagine that we have far more control over our lives than than we actually do, and far more control over the outcomes of our work than we actually do, at least past a certain point. On the other, I guess I need a third hand now, even if we can, get ahead and and beat the competition just through hard work, working nonstop. Is that really the way that God's calling us to live, just in this constant churning cycle of always scrambling to stay one step ahead? Well, let's look at this passage in Jeremiah in a little more detail and see what he has to say and then perhaps we can draw some lines from there uh, toward our own day and our own time and our own situation. The Lord sends Jeremiah down to one of the city gates, and actually it seems like he's to go to this one gate where he's to deliver the message, the people's gate, and then he's supposed to go around to the other gates of the city as well and make the rounds preaching this message. That was probably helpful for us at the beginning here to understand how a city gate functioned in the ancient Near Eastern world. We tend to think, if we think about such things at all, of like a medieval castle gate. Great big doors with big strong iron bars and like a portcullis that comes down, maybe, and a drawbridge that goes up. The sort of thing that you see in in, um, sci-fi or fantasy movies, I should say. Um, That sort of thing. Uh, City gates in the ancient Near Eastern world, of course, they did did have these, these defensive mechanisms, but they were more than just that. They were more than just a door that you closed to to keep people out of your city. City gates in the ancient Near Eastern world, that was where the commercial, uh, the social, economic, uh, even the, the judicial life of a city took place. It was where business was transacted. It was where legal decisions were decided. And so when Jeremiah goes down to the city gate, he's not just going to see traffic coming in and out of town. He comments on that a bit, but he's also going to be seeing merchants at open-air markets, property being bought and sold, judges rendering verdicts. This is a hustling, bustling kind of a place. The city gates were the economic and and financial heartbeat of, of an ancient city. It's sort of like a cross between a a modern cattle auction, a shopping mall, the stock exchange, and and the Supreme Court. Like, it's all being transacted right there at the gates of the city. And God tells Jeremiah, he needs to go down there to where all this is going on and, and where it says the king even comes and goes through this gate. Maybe he's going to make an appearance. But Jeremiah has to go down there and tell them, whoa, you need to take a time out here, guys. You need to stop. Guess what? He's probably not going to be very popular for delivering this message. That, If you've read Jeremiah at all, and even in our short time with him, he's not a very popular guy. He's always delivering messages that no one wants to hear. Now, some translations smooth this out a bit, but others, such as the ESV that I read just moments ago, preserve something from the Hebrew quite well. Uh, watch out as you value your lives. Take care for the sake of your lives, the ESV says. This is is the idea in Hebrew. Uh, It's it's, it's quite direct. And and the thing, God's law, God's covenant, was always concerned from day one with the long-term future of Israel. We've established this now with frequent looks back to the book of Deuteronomy. However, Israel, and really everybody that's human, was always way more concerned about short-term issues than long-term consequences. And so when judgment for bending or breaking the terms of the covenant didn't come down hard immediately like a ton of bricks, and we all do this, they assume, well, it didn't come down hard like a ton of bricks right away, must not be coming at all. So here's this, this trading center with all its activity, filled with people saying, in essence, I just need to make a a few more shekels in the next week or two. And Jeremiah is saying, but it's going to kill you in the next year or two. There's a sense in which this is what it means to be a prophet. Their whole project always seemed to be to point out that the the short-term pleasures and possible short-term gains of sin, oppression, worshipping idols, Playing fast and loose with God's covenant were going to bring long-term consequences that would far, far outweigh anything that they gained. That's how God's covenant was designed to work. Furthermore, something about God's covenant was always counterintuitive. It's actually by limiting their economic productivity that God will bring bring blessing. If they'd stop working and stop their buying and selling just for one day a week, if they'd let go of that frantic grab just to get a little bit more, God would give them and bring them so much more. He would bring them stability in their leadership. That's what's promised in this passage. Their king would rule. He'd bring them security in their civic and national affairs. The city would be established. And he would bring them prosperity. All this, this stuff at the end of this passage about the, 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 the agricultural produce, the, the grain and animal sacrifices, indicating that the land is productive. Moreover, it's pursuing these very things by their own strength and by their own wisdom. Remember last week what we talked about. Cursed is the man who relies on man and trusts in in mere flesh. It's. Pursuing those things in that way, by their own strength, in their own wisdom, that's actually going to bring God's judgment. Remember our earlier reading today even. Your hand didn't get you all this stuff that you're enjoying for yourself. You didn't get that for yourself anyhow. The Lord gave that to you and gave you the ability to do well. It's the Lord who blesses you. And the judgment that's coming, although it's not going to come immediately, it will come, surely, is, well, you probably guessed it, the destruction of Jerusalem. These gates will no longer be an area of buying and selling, Jeremiah says, but an area of battle and destruction by fire. The end will come. But unfortunately, the people did what people seem to do, and and we all do, dismiss that, ah, still a long way off in the future, not to worry and they just kept on doing what they were doing. And in 2 Chronicles, right at the end, we read an interesting verse about what happened when the destruction finally did come that points back to this passage. and This is speaking of the Babylonians. And they burned the house of God, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. And Nebuchadnezzar, he took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now this may be talking as well about the agricultural Sabbath that was to take place every seven years in, in addition to the weekly Sabbath. So a 70-year exile would make up for something like 490 years of not keeping the, the every seven years Sabbath. And that's kind of a ballpark for actually Israel's history as a nation, at least from the time of the monarchy onwards. And it's probably not meant to be 100% exact, but it, it seems to be that this idea that this 70 years of exile was to make up for their not following the Sabbath all those years. What it does tell us is this was serious business. Talk about the breaking of other commands, the worshipping of idols, the, the oppression of the poor, the stealing and killing and, and so forth, as the reason that Israel went into exile. And certainly those sins do get a lot of of space devoted to them in the writings of the prophets. But this one matters too. There's something, there's just something deep and powerful about the Sabbath that it seems, you know, you don't mess with. Whether you look at it from the point of view of covenant specifics or, or general principles, this is something that God just, just baked into the world that you can't get around. And if you try to get around, it comes back to bite you. This seems to be one lesson that Israel actually did learn really well while they were in exile. Of course, by Jesus' day, it seems that they had actually learned it too well. They'd become kind of legalistic about it. and It probably started as just legitimate clarifications about those things that were counted as work and those things that weren't work and those things that maybe were work that you shouldn't do, but under extenuating circumstances, might be okay. And even Jesus got into that with the Pharisees a little bit. Like, well, what if an animal falls down a well? Are you going to pull them out? And then why isn't it okay to heal someone on the Sabbath? The the religious leaders just seem to go overboard with this in their desire to honor the Sabbath. And that's a pretty natural tendency. But, you know, even so, to this day, keeping the Sabbath is still one of the primary things that characterizes uh, observant Jewish people. When I ordered this new microphone that I got, uh, I ordered it, uh, well I tried initially to order it from Canadian retailers, want to support Canadian business I guess, and also just because it'd get here faster, but uh, the places I looked didn't have what I needed in stock, and so I decided to order from B&H Photo Video Pro Audio uh, there in in the States, New York actually, and it's a huge retailer of, of electronics and photography equipment and so forth, and and uh, I've ordered stuff from them before. Now, interestingly enough, the, this business is owned by uh, observant Jewish people. Uh, and they employ a lot of Jewish people. And so they close for every Sabbath and every Jewish holiday. Part of the reason it took me a while to get this microphone was when I ordered it, uh, they were closed for the week of Passover. And they just close. On the one hand, it might seem kind of strict that if you, even if you make an online order, during the sabbath uh, to avoid doing business on the sabbath their website is set up so that it will not take money from your credit card until the sabbath is over and, and maybe that seems really strict and we go well, that's weird but you know maybe we wouldn't be so bad off if if we just committed to something like that you know the problem the problem we seem to have is we all go Yeah, maybe that wouldn't be such a bad idea. We like the idea in principle of everybody just take a day off, take a day to rest, take a day to not do work, not to do business, not to keep scrambling to get ahead. We like the idea in principle. We just want to make everything for us an exception to it for fear that we should miss out on something. But you know, if everything is an exception, if everything's an extenuating circumstance, then nothing is an extenuating circumstance and we're back to square one and and this seems to be the the thing we go round and round on. This kind of comes back to what I was talking about last week in pursuing the blessed and life-giving way of deep roots and and fruitful living. Sure, it means deciding for some things and against other things, but in reality, it's choosing to live the way that Jesus calls us to live and accepting the gift of the abundant life that he offers us. Now, of course, Jeremiah lived before Jesus, but the principle is the same. Life under God's blessing is a life of receiving his gifts. Sometimes we just have to come to a place where we see them as gifts rather than burdens. That's kind of what's going on in this passage, right? the people are carrying these burdens in and out through the, the gates of Jerusalem, and they don't seem to realize that you know, they're treating the Sabbath as though it's a burden, and meanwhile, they're, they're lugging these great big loads around. And, and the reality is, of course, the opposite, if only they would see it. Sometimes, unfortunately, the Lord needs to shake us up with drastic measures before that will happen. So I've said in past messages, Israel and our modern Western societies aren't a one-to-one parallel. You know, we can't say that COVID-19 is a judgment from God for not keeping the Sabbath. However, given our society's preoccupation with greed and economic cutthroat competition, this enforced shutdown to enforce the Sabbaths we've not been taking, well, that does seem somewhat plausible and at least something maybe our society deserves. Again, you can't draw a one-to-one line, but you do have to at least pause and ask. As I've said as well, you can't draw a one-to-one line to the church either. Some are going to place greater importance on keeping the Sabbath, either as the Lord's Day or on Sunday or perhaps some other day of the week, if you do shift work or or such. Others will see this as something we just don't need to do anymore. At the end of the day, I, I think it's kind of hard to make the argument from the New Testament that we have to keep the Sabbath. But maybe the whole debate about do we have to keep the Sabbath is to miss the point. I'm not sure the intention in the Old Testament either was to have to keep the Sabbath. It's to get to keep the Sabbath. It's a gift. And for some reason I've been thinking a lot about Christmas lately. and That's kind of strange and I'm not sure why, but what it does make me think about is, is gifts. I don't know quite what that says about me as a pastor, if I think about gifts when I think about Christmas, but we'll just set that aside for a moment. Everyone will have different gift-giving traditions in your families, but you know, there are different sorts of gifts, aren't there? This year at Christmas, I I received from from my mom and dad a biography of Winston Churchill, great big thousand-page-thick thing that I I had kind of expressed a desire that I would like to have. And I remember sitting there by the fire. I wrote my name in the front cover and, you know, put my feet up by the fire and started reading. And it took a long time because it was pretty thick. I just finished it not that long ago, kind of reading it off and on when I've had time to do so. But it was just a thing to, to enjoy in my spare time. And there's nothing wrong with a gift like that. But there are other kinds of gifts. You know, I wonder, were you ever that kid that wished for a puppy at Christmas? Or maybe a guitar. Did you ever get one? Those are different kinds of gifts. The puppy requires all sorts of care, doesn't he? You got to feed him, got to water him, got to exercise him. You got to wash him. You got to clean up after him. You got to teach him stuff. The puppy is a gift, but a lot of work. The guitar is kind of the same way too. You get a guitar, but if you want to actually make use of it, you've got to practice. You've got to develop hand-eye coordination. You've got to get better at your your manual dexterity. You've You've got to grow some calluses on your fingertips. One of two things seems to always happen to kids that get guitars or puppies or similar things like that for Christmas. Either those kids become passionate about dogs or music or they forget about them in just a few weeks time, right? When you get tired of cleaning up, after that puppy, after he's made a mess, after he's chewed on something. uh, When the guitar gets frustrating and you can't figure out how to put your fingers in the right place to to make the chord that you want to make, to play the song that you want to play. You know, as soon as there's real work involved, the, the temptation is to always give up. And pretty soon, mom or dad is caring for the puppy and the guitar is sitting collecting dust in the corner somewhere. Usually goes one of those two ways. Either you come to love it, and that that puppy or that guitar becomes your, your constant companion, or you give up on it because it's not worth the frustration. Take some effort before you really come to love a gift like that, when it actually takes some work and some discipline. Last week, we heard from Mark Duncan about taking a break from social media and news for just a day and and his experience of finding out how refreshing that was. And, And I think for many of us, that's going to actually be pretty important in what we do. More important than taking a break from a lot of things that we could do currently. I really appreciated Mark sharing how just excessive time spent online meant that he kind of just gradually but imperceptibly Uh, His his anxiety just kept going up until it boiled over. I suspect that's true for many of us. So that might be one of the best things you could uh, choose to take a break from on your Sabbath, to stop that, to consciously set it aside. Maybe you also need to set up some boundaries with your work. I know one of the things a lot of people have talked about in this season where more people are working from home is that the whole boundary between home and work has gotten blurred. And if the boundary between home Home and work as a space gets blurred, uh, work time and home time also gets blurred. And if home time and work time get blurred, then all time is work time, and that can just be draining. It might be good to set up a, at least an understanding with your closest colleagues about when you're not going to be answering your email because that's that's part of your your Sabbath, if that's at all possible. Maybe it's also just means you set up an auto respond uh, for people kind of outside. Your, your close circle of colleagues just to let people know hey I'll get back to this take a little of the pressure off yourself for feeling like you need to respond immediately another thing that goes along with that and maybe this is more the case if if you've got a little kids at home since there's no school and and there's not the usual this day of the week this happens and this other day is this one day just blurs into the next a lot of us do much better with routines and rhythms, and practicing Sabbath will put some of that back into a given week. It sets apart one day from the rest, but it also helps to put all the other days back into their proper place as well. You know, finally, there's there's a reason we call what we do with a spiritual discipline, like the Sabbath, practice. Again, that that analogy or illustration of Learning to play the guitar you got for Christmas—you've got to practice at it. You won't be really good at it right away. It'll take some time. You'll struggle with it a little bit initially. You'll get frustrated. You'll find you're not as good as you want to be. But if you keep working at it, and it will become more natural, become something that you truly love and truly embrace, and and in time, something you maybe couldn't imagine living without. You know, learning to embrace. Sabbath was one of the lessons that Israel did learn in their time of exile, in which, like I said, observant Jews continue to uphold and to embrace and to observe even now. Now, what if, what if we as Christians recovered some sense of what the Sabbath might mean for us? Not in the way that maybe some, some of you grew up, uh, wearing the uncomfortable clothes and not being allowed to play outside and just sitting there being bored on a Sunday afternoon, but rather in a way that just said no to some of the usual worldly distractions that you find aren't that good for you anyhow, and instead said yes to the gift of God's gracious presence with us and among us. That would be a good lesson to learn. So you probably got some ideas and instructions uh, in the service order that was sent out, but let me just say this. Let me just say this. If this is going to work for you, especially in the time where we find ourselves, you're going to have to make up your mind to do this together as a family. And you're going to have to make a plan, plan it out, and then stick to it. At least to some extent, you'll need a plan. So if it's no social media for the day, or no no news, or no screens at all, or no work email, or whatever it is, you'll have to all agree to stick to it. And then not just plan how you're going to say no to these things, but plan what you're going to do instead. If you don't have a plan for what you're going to do instead, you'll probably just sit there being bored and then be tempted to pull out your phone or your device and kind of just go right back to the habits of the things that that you're trying to avoid. It might be different for different families and and that's okay. We don't need to be legalistic about this. We don't need to let fear of being legalistic about this prevent us from, from doing anything at all that might be good and be nourishing and even healing to our souls. But talk about it around the table today. Come up with a few ideas. Figure out which one you're going to do. Maybe start small, but make some decisions. And then come up with a plan for how you're going to make that work in this week ahead. And then, and this is my prayer for you uh, in the week ahead, enjoy the rest that God gives. Amen.